Hello, world. Welcome back to Working Wisely, the podcast about how people build their careers, motivate themselves, and enjoy their lives along the way. For this episode, I spoke with the author and UX designer Henry Latham about his brilliant new book, Why Your Startup is Failing. A little more about Henry, he is the founder and the head of product for the personal journaling app Scribe, which is a great application, and he's also the head of product at Code Control, a platform matching the right companies with the right freelancers. During our chat, some great points were made on why most startups fail, why agile methods like Scrum so often get implemented incorrectly, why founders lose sight of their goals as they try to make their companies more efficient, why so many people want to work at startups even when most of them fail, and why so many startups overlook factors such as morale and mental health at their peril. Near the end, we also discuss the benefits of practices like meditation, keeping a sustainable work-life balance, and how to get the right amounts of both productivity and purpose in your career. On that note, here's my conversation with Henry Latham. Henry, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Yeah, man. How's it feel to write your first book? Uh, it's not fun. It's sort of relieving. No? I think would be the sensation. Uh, it's eight months of work. Plus, obviously, the years before where you're sort of developing an idea, like refining it, trying to find themes yeah. across writing. Um, but yeah, nice to actually have it done now. So it's, it's coming out in August. Yeah, now it's just just the, the goodwill tour, right? You're yeah, well, it's doing the tweak for design. Yeah, doing some actually crowd. What's called crowd publishing? This new concept, which I'm trying in um, August. Okay, what is crowd publishing? So it's, yeah, so essentially, sort of like crowdfunding for any any other product. So you where, make a bad online video and beg people to help. <laughs> pretty you? much, uh, yeah. Because I mean, the initial plan is that, that I was I started it as a hobby, really, to define. To clarify my own philosophy on life and product and sort of work purpose, etc., and then um, I started putting articles out, and those articles started getting traction. You know, started triggering discussions on LinkedIn, Medium, getting tens of thousands of reads on some of them. So I, I started taking it a little bit more seriously, and then a, a guy reached out to me from a company called Publishizer, who um, essentially said, "Hey, have you thought about writing a book?" And I said, "Well, actually, I am writing a book." Um, and essentially what you do is, is put it on this platform, which I'm doing from the 1st to the 30th of August. And really what they do is deal with all your pre-release sales. Like they obviously have their own, own customers as well. So you get access to them and then, um, you're really just trying to sort of, how do you say, uh, you know, market the book essentially through this platform. Okay. Wow. Okay. So interesting. So you kind of did some small toe in the water things like articles, things of that nature. And over time, as you got feedback on certain ones, a certain one's got some play, that kind of pushed you to sort of think this yeah, could be a book. Exactly. There's a lot of lean testing involved with, you know, starting with, I think it's always good to start with a, a passion, right? A passion project without the pressure of turning something into a business. So for me, it was really, as I said, you start writing, getting ideas out. And then I, as I started thinking of it in a more serious way, it was lean testing specific assumptions for specific articles. Yeah, it's very it's a very UX designer way yeah, to write 100%. a book. Right? I mean and then you know doing the classic thing of like Facebook ads, split testing, um, you know, different titles, different front covers, etc. Uh same thing on Medium. Like they've always had quite a strong following on Medium. So it was simply a case of trying different titles out, trying it on different publications within Medium to see 
which audience certain things resonated with. Okay, so uh, trying so to like stir the pot now and again as well, like put something a little controversial out and see where we go. <laughs> Get some outrage clickbait. Exactly, exactly. Oh, fantastic! All right, well let's let's start with some outrage clickbait. My questions. <laughs> um, so you you talk a lot in your medium articles and also a little bit in your book yeah. about sort of this. I mean, the title is anti-agile, but I would argue what you're often saying is that agile, as people often define it, you know, the sort of iterative and uh, innovative process of baby steps and listening to users to make a product, you know, yeah. long story short. Why is it killing startups? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, slightly clickbaity title, but, but hey. Um, no, essentially the point is a very serious one where, where Agile as a philosophy was there. Basically what happened, which is still happening, is a lot of companies following what we call a waterfall approach, right? Where the big boss says, I want to build this app that does X. Um, and the problem obviously there is that there's a huge amount of assumptions and uncertainty underpinning that idea. So people, yeah. you know, a team, build a team, sit them in a room for a year, a few years at times, work on this big, exciting new project. They launch it and shit, nobody wants to use it, right? Because they never studied the problem itself. They just jump to an exciting solution, uh, a solution for, for nothing, essentially. Um, and nowadays, obviously, a lot of companies talk about things like Agile and Lean and and sorry, Agile came about because in the early 2000s, a lot of developers essentially got fed up with the situation of building crap, sat, sat in a room and came out really with a philosophy, a, a manifesto, which touches upon two key points. One, which is um, be adaptive, right? Be open to change. Second thing, listen to your customer, try and serve your customer. Now, currently what happens is a lot of companies, well, Agile is used as a buzzword. For this, you know, being adaptive, being open, and listening to the customer. Yeah, so this is absolutely. a buzzword, but not actually executed as it was meant to, according to the philosophy. So Agile as a, a, a philosophy currently translates itself as um, a practice of something like Scrum. Right. So Scrum is a way to manage tasks. Essentially, right, we get a team, we define what we're going to do for a few weeks, we, we build it in a structured way. And we ideally, what we do is we look at the outcome of the work we did, say, okay, you know, what, what have we learned from this? Like, say we build a new feature, what happened there? Did the user, did the user use it as expected or not? The problem, however, in practice is that a lot of teams actually end up focusing on efficiency and not effectiveness. Yeah, that's one of your main points. So I want to throw a story at you and see what you think. Yeah. So I remember talking to a UX designer in Berlin from from somewhere in the American Midwest, very, very wholesome, friendly dude. So I, I felt like I could ask him an honest question and I could at least get a polite answer. And uh, so I asked him, uh, I said, so like, what's your target market for your product or whatever? He actually had a weird answer. He said, I don't want a target market. I want, I just want to know what the market already wants. Yeah. And I don't know. I think on one hand, I think that's sort of the clever techie thing now is sort of get the, get a social scientist approach and, and, and build something based on what you understand people to want. But then at the same time, you know, it's an overused phrase, but there's that Henry Ford expression, you know, ask people what they want before a car is invented and they'll ask for a faster horse. So on that, on that particular theme, where, where do you stand on, okay, agile is flawed. Agile has a lot of issues regarding how it's literally implemented. Yeah. Um, 
But then how does one decide what's the right thing to learn from the person or the user that they're studying or pursuing? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like everything. It depends. And that is, that is the crux of the problem, right? Is, is so, sorry, backtracking a little bit. So I didn't leave my point. Um, yeah. So basically the problem is that humans simplify down to one key thing, right? So, so when we start optimizing for efficiency, so how many tasks we get done per week, how many story points we estimated something, right? We, we're looking at that. We're looking at efficiency. We're not looking at outcome. Right? So, you know, what, how did the user use it? Like how much money did that make us as a company? And I think equally there is a danger with ideation right, or, or decision making where it is very easy to just look at the data. So great to be data driven, right? You're informing your decisions in, in as objective a way as possible. However, there is a danger that you optimize for data that does not make sense. Yeah. So there's a very danger. It's, it's, it's dangerous. Because, yeah, firstly, right, the data could be wrong. So, you know, if you do um, user interviews, there's a huge amount of bias involved because, you know, so you as a designer or as a, as a product manager, you, you want an outcome, right? You, you already have an idea of what you want validated. Therefore, you look for the information in the interview to validate your idea and, and you will not listen to actually some of the other advice. Um, so there's firstly the danger of, of, of misinterpreting data and then treating it like the truth. Which, which it never is. There's always question marks over things. Secondly, there, you know, no innovation truly comes from, um, tiny iterations, right? Of looking at this, you know, looking at one section of the onboarding and saying, okay, we, you know, we need to move this button left or right, or we need to, um, you know, redo, redo this single page. We also need on the other side, this sort of big, wide open, Thinking, essentially design thinking, right? We're really looking at the problem on a high level, exploring, uh, exploring the problem to, to, a, to a huge amount of depth and then coming to a, a leap, leap of logic, right? It's the Steve Jobs approach, the Henry Ford of, you know, putting, understanding the problem so well that you can come up with a solution that no one else has thought about or that, that completely, um, you know, immediately solves the problem. And I think a great example for, uh, in Berlin I've seen recently is, sorry, I keep moving mic. Um, no worries, no worries. <laughs> uh, you know, the last two years, these, um, pedal bike companies have come along. Oh man, yeah. Dominated the bikes. Yeah, exactly. Dominated the whole market, you know, dominated the market. Everyone's like, let's get the game. Flooded very good, isn't it? Uh, flooded the market with various, of these companies, you know, yes. four or five all over Berlin. And, um, you look at essentially the problem for them is it's sort of rapid, you know, rapid travel around the, around the city. Um, and then recently, only in the last month, Uber have held off for a number of years rather than jumping into the same game. They've actually said, well, we can completely trump this by understanding that people the, the bike is not a competition. It's not competing with walking. It is competing with a car. It is competing with the train. So they come in with this electric bike, goes at 30 miles per hour almost, sorry, 30 kilometers per hour, and gets you across the city in, in 20 minutes, um, rather than a pedal bike that you're going to turn up sweaty, tired, and will take you double the time. And you might already own. Sorry? And you might already own. Exactly. Right? Or Lots of people have bikes. So, so again, that's a great example where if you looked at all the data, you would come out with a faster pedal bike or a cheaper pedal bike you're not positioning yourself you're positioning yourself within more or less the same market 
and what Uber have done very cleverly and what you know Apple did with the, the iPod in relation to the MP3 player was simply say we're not playing that game. Yeah. Because that's a, it's the child you know, it's a stupid child's game to play. We're gonna really go a level up because we deeply understand what 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 the pain points of um, this is something though you sum up well in your impact versus efficiency argument, which is yep. that you can be the most efficient company on the planet, you know, cranking out results, looking at data, checking all the boxes, yep. but you could be really efficiently doing the completely wrong idea. And I think what's compelling about what I've read of your book and what I've read in some of your online materials is that you make the point that, you know, an effective company, especially one that's trying to be, you know, quote unquote innovative, what they're really trying to do is is define a new piece of economic terrain where they can kind of shape it, yeah. not necessarily be the uh, you know toughest boxer in the ring that's already full of so many boxers exactly. nobody knows yeah, what yeah. they can get a hit in. Yeah, it's a, it's called blue ocean red ocean strategy, right? So if you're, if you're in a blue ocean and you're competing simply on price, yeah, it's always sorry red ocean. Well, yeah. So red, for folks that don't know the analogy of red ocean blue ocean, it's it's yeah, uh, meant to represent a feeding frenzy of sharks yeah. just eating. Dead fish at such a rate it's made the water red. And if you're a if you're a smart shark, you go where there's not uh you know red water because blood attracts sharks. You know, and you know I don't think I need to make that analogy more clear as it regards tech. Um, yeah, it's such as it's how do you position yourself? How do you how do you strategically position yourself to not compete? Yes. Uh, so again, the iPod is is the perfect example. Same thing with the, with the jump. At some point, other people will obviously jump into the market and it will turn into a red ocean. But at that point, hopefully you've moved on to the next thing. But um, yeah, sorry, back to your point about impact. Like one huge shift in my thinking on life, which I think was somewhere there in the background, but was very, really crystallized by reading the book Anti-Fragility by Nassim uh, Talib. Anti-Fragility, okay. Yeah, uh, it's a huge book and super complex. But one key point he makes is which is so valid and is always overlooked, is that things simply don't matter unless there is a high chance of the long-term outcome being positive. So when we look at startups, for example, like if what you are doing now is not sustainable over the long term, if, for example, you are purchasing growth through Facebook ads or paid marketing, at some point the money is going to dry up, right? The investment is going to dry up. And therefore, if you have a weak foundation for that business, at some point it's going to fail. Why not ask yourself the, the fundamental questions like early instead of you find out after five, six years that actually you're not profitable. You've just been sustaining growth through paid advertising. So the point he makes is, is again, I really think people should think about this more. And for me, it's been like a revelation is things simply do not matter unless the long term outcome is a positive one yeah but henry what if i'm like some you know really really capable developer and our founders just got another round of funding and there's a big party and i feel fantastic about myself i don't know how we're making money and i don't know if what i'm doing is necessary but i seem to have a lot of cognitively interesting tasks every day how do i evaluate if i'm like a, an employee um, I mean, it depends on it, that my startup is on the wrong or the right track. I mean, great point. What's a, great a point. what's a good sign that I'm I, I like a, a good sign and a bad sign? Maybe. No, I think that's a great point because I mean the, the book is is targeted at um, startup founders or product leaders. So, so <laughs> they are the people that need to think about these things. However, um, that is a really important point that I sort of recognise over the last few years as well. Is like outcomes are defined very differently. 
So if you are a developer and enjoy your work and you, you know, you're well paid and you're fine with it, you don't have an invested, you don't have a huge invested um, uh, interest in the outcome of the company, then sure, fine. Like, don't worry about it. It's not really your problem to worry about in that situation. Okay. However, however, I also think that essentially, like, we as humans require some sort of purpose and Yes, you can get purpose from your day-to-day, you know, interesting work. But fundamentally, um, we should, in my view at least, strive to have as much impact as possible. That doesn't mean, you know, working 20 hours a day, work 20-hour days, not seeing family, friends, etc. But it does mean sort of asking yourself sometimes difficult questions about how you want to use your skill set, how you want to use your time and resources to to do some good in the world. And this is something I think a lot of people are asking themselves now, and I think there has yeah. not been a very concise answer to it. I mean, on one hand, you have these sort of traditional go grind until you burn out, sort of make as much money as you can thing, which is getting critiqued more, but is ultimately, I think, how a lot of people, especially in North America where I'm from, yeah. uh, operate. And then you also have this sort of Tim Ferriss, uh, yeah. you know, look how ambitiously I chill out four hour work week yeah. approach, which I, I personally have issues with. Tim, if you're listening to this, you, you need to find something better to do because your <laughs> podcast has a lot more viewers. But, um, what I would throw in is I think, especially as regards knowledge work, I'd be interested in your point of view on this. I kind of think just from my designy brain that one thing that we still do with knowledge work is we approach it like it's factory work. So if you're putting cars on doors eight hours a day, that means more cars got made. But if you are thinking badly eight hours a day or 12 hours a day and you're patting yourself on the back because of, quote unquote, the struggle, um, you're not necessarily making any any moves. And you're not necessarily making an impact on what you're trying to do. And that's that's the point of your book, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that, the foundation of the book is essentially... Um there's three three levels to it, right? The top level is yes, we need a good process, right? We need we need a lean, essentially an agile process yeah. for making good product decisions. So that is your framework for decision making. For example, when it comes to to you know what do I do today, we need to have a very clear idea of what the company vision is, what our current strategy is to help us, you know, which direction we go in to help us achieve that, and then we need a process of execution where we we work on something. We evaluate what the outcome is, we learn from it, and then we repeat. Okay, so, so that's but, good. That's the process, but the, but the level down for me, so, so that is the thing people, companies worry about, and it is very important, but it is not the most important thing. I mean, the most important thing is a foundation of good decision-making. It's like high-quality decisions. And okay. high-quality decisions, particularly as a creative, as you rightly said, does not come from some industrial era, era factory work day. Because when has anyone come up with a good idea when they are very tired, when they're overstressed, when they're overworked? It's simply not the case. And therefore, we need to restructure how we approach work, really fundamentally, radically change how we approach work to ensure that we're making good decisions and basically coming up with good ideas and having the energy to actually um, implement those ideas. And for me, in the book, that comes down to three core principles, right? Because decision-making and ideas really come from every influence we have in our life. Right. But for me, there are three sort of actionable pillars that we can cultivate, particularly in the context of work, um, to to enhance our decision making. And for me that comes down to firstly being more mindful. Right. So being being able to calmly 
rationally approach decisions, being detached from from the outcomes. So say, for example, particularly as a designer, you know, we, we get attached to an idea we have. Maybe it's a feature or a new sort of brand idea we have. Yeah, it becomes our baby. Exactly, it becomes our baby. And it's very difficult to um, throw... What's Kill your darling. Kill your darling. That's the, word. I was looking, the phrase I was looking for. It's very difficult to do that if you are not able to sort of step back from your ideas and say, you know what, I love this, but does it, at the end of the day, offer value to the user and ultimately offer value to the business? If you're not mindful, you cannot do that. Secondly, if you are... Sorry, you, you need to be robust. This is principle two, yeah? This is principle two. So you need to be robust so that you are able to, to um, deal with failure, the failure that is necessary when we work in a startup environment, right? a start, an environment of uncertainty where we don't quite know what we're, you know, what problem we're solving yet. We don't know quite what solutions we should be working on. Process of validation that requires failure and it requires this very brutal honesty with ourselves and with our team to, um, to deal with that, to deal with the uncertainty, the psychological toll of, of failure and uncertainty. And then thirdly, we need to be focused on the essential. So, you know, we, we could do a million things as an entrepreneur or in a small company, but generally there's one or two things that really matter. We need to be able and be comfortable with cutting things out, like you know, not worrying about that icon on the settings page that's not quite aligned properly. I love those not, icons. <laughs> not worrying about the color of a, a button at this stage, right? It, it, we need to fundamentally think, does, does this as a platform make sense? Like, if not, we need to tear it down and try something new. We need to be very brutal and, and essentialist with that. And so for me, it's when you have those pillars of being robust, being mindful and being focused on the essential. Once you have that, a team of individuals with that and you can cultivate those traits within your team, which uh, in, the, in the book, I list a lot of uh, specific strategies and tactics you can use to cultivate those traits. Once you have that foundation, then you can worry about process. Well, that's what I want to point out is, okay, so mindful, robust, focused. I've never heard a single uh, founder or quote unquote entrepreneur or, or I don't hear many people in the tech community um, using those adjectives about themselves or their companies. What I typically hear is, um, well, agile, yeah. innovative, um, you know, maybe they'll say something about celebrating failure in the sense that like Michael Jack Jordan didn't get to the Yeah, I mean, it's bullshit. Country. There's yeah. so much bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. And I think that people kind of know it's bullshit, but I think at the same time, we, it's, it's a very hard thing to do in practice to, to, because especially if you're, whoever you are, you're, you're, you're worried about having artifacts of your output in your work. You don't want to uh, look back on your week and go, oh, that was all rubbish. So, I mean, it does kind of lead me to my next question, which is, okay, so broadly speaking, there's a lot of good things in Agile, as you've said, but the problem is it, it pushes people into a comfort zone of just looking at efficiency and not impact. So, like, how do you, how do you challenge that? Yeah, yeah. So, this also is a very important distinction to make. So, Agile as a, as a philosophy is one, as I said, that, that if there's nothing wrong with the philosophy, which is essentially that... Because um, that's what it is. Being, it's a philosophy. Being exactly, it is, yeah. So it's about being adaptive and listening to users. Both of those things make a huge amount of sense. The problem is that agile methodologies such as Scrum, so running sprints and meticulously planning how, many, how much time or complexity each task will require, the problem in practice is that... Um, as I said, people simplify and they default 
to the most simple thing they can find, which is a metric of efficiency. Um, and the difficulty comes right from outcomes generally for most companies being because they aren't tracking it. It's very intangible, right? So, so I'll come on to my, my you know the solution, right? the, the the process to use to avoid that problem. But because companies don't track outcomes, they've got no no way of, of actually knowing what's going on. Well, do they have a disincentive in some cases to, to not Yes, yeah, 100%. Because again, it's very difficult. I mean, one thing I've learned being an entrepreneur is there are difficult truths that you can kick down the road, but at some point it's going to come and bite you in the ass. It's like my first business, we spent the first two years, a company called Backtracker I founded in 2014 at university. In the first two years, we, we just simply did not answer key assumptions underpinning the business. <laughs> Why did you want to make your first business? Just uh, like on a personal level, like what, what, I, was, what did you just I mean, break I wanted up? freedom. I wanted freedom. Like I was traveling in Brazil by myself, learning, trying to self-teach Portuguese, going down the Amazon, um, not very fun, four days, quite like hot and humid. Different story. Anyway, That's came up cool with this though, idea. Because most people in that environment are probably not going like, I should start a business. No, but I was so bored. I had four days sitting on this boat. You're bored in the Amazon? 35 degrees. Like, you can't see any nature. You're just sitting on this like big brown river. So it's sort of cool. And then you have another like 12 hours of just sitting, watching water and just about being able to converse with people. Uh, anyway, I came up with the idea for this travel business called Backtracker then, which allows you to plot your journey when you're traveling, like have a check out, you know, say Jesse went to Brazil last year, I can check on okay. your route, see where you pin suggestions. Um, so I, I did it because, you know, I, I like travel, I found that interesting. But at its core, actually, the motivation was always freedom, right? This freedom to, to you know, use my time as I wanted to have impact in some way. Um, that for me was the fundamental drive for it but autonomy you, autonomy yeah autonomy and purpose but once you start a business because it becomes your baby or i mean again this is why the, the book emerged from all of these these failures and bad experiences once you start the business it's much easier to latch on to this the vision the excitement of where it's going to be in 10 years and you fail to address the core assumptions that you need to yeah, need to yeah. validate earlier. For example, we never validated, is this a big enough problem? So we spent two years worrying about, you know, like, oh, maybe we change the website, like let's change the flow of the app. Never actually saying, well, is Google Maps good enough? Yes. Like, is it more accurate? Yes. Is it better at, valid at having, um, you know, reviews, etc.? Even five years ago, this was definitely the case. Is, it, is that good enough for travel? And can you also get the social side of things with, Facebook, yes. Yes, of course, you could build a sort of social Google Maps style app, but it is really, it was a business that probably should, should never have been started. And I think too many companies get excited, get investment, and then they're in this sort of spiral where they simply, you know, you can't turn around to someone and say, um, actually, you know what, I think this is sort of not the right thing to do. <laughs> And, yeah, because once you've sunk some resources into it and some exactly, time. Exactly. And you tough. can pivot. You know, like, for example, um, we Scribe, the company where I'm, I'm founder of at the moment. Yes, like let's, we, talk about, let's talk about Scribe. So that's the yeah. one you started in Berlin, right? Yeah. But so let me, let, that, that last point is really important. Okay, um, let's make so it So like you, you can pivot, theoretically. Any business can pivot and say, you know what, this, this, this market or this solution, you can pivot on the market or the solution. Um, but again, it's very difficult 
to explain to other people and also to explain to yourself. And that's why, again, it comes back to me that you need this, this foundation of good, high-quality decision-making, able to have these difficult conversations with yourself, essentially, to be able to make those decisions. And like now, with seven years' experience, like I'm very comfortable doing that. So, for example, with Scribe, we... This is a company we've, we've bootstrapped to profitability and, and I'm currently working on part-time. Um, we have recently pivoted away from um, trying to sort of offer a, essentially it's a journaling application. Okay. Right. The, the value proposition initially was trying to help people with anxiety sort of come on and have this therapeutic, um, do this therapeutic exercise. And actually recently we said, you know, fundamentally we do not believe that 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 we, we believe we can build a long-term product here. Do we believe it is the best solution out there for that problem? Probably not. It's either you go to therapy or you use some sort of very intelligent AI-driven writing tool. So we said, actually, you know what? We're going to backtrack, um, pause, and focus instead on entrepreneurs who want to um, uh, improve their ability to prioritize. And that's the blue water, right? Exactly. So the mental exactly. health thing is sort of your, your red water. Exactly, exactly. And so, so what we did, I think, very intelligently is like boot, we've been bootstrapping the company, but launch a prototype, validate that we can make money from this. And now at the moment, the big question, and then we basically said, you know, I don't, I don't think this is the type of thing that's going to be a, a big long-term business for us. And, and again, we asked the question, like, is this the type of thing we want to do for the rest of our life? Not really. You know, with evidence such as you know, the, the impact of things like MDMA and psychedelic drugs on mental health. Like for me, that seems to be the future. Therefore, does it, does oh, it Oh, you're help? talking about like the psychosyllabin therapy and some of the yeah, stuff exactly. going for on. For me, in that's like, more effective uh, than US. us building this sort of therapeutic writing tool. So again, we, we, we have the mental robustness and mindfulness and, and ability to focus on the long term to sort of take a step back and actually go, where can we find a, yeah, a, a blue water market, right? So journaling for entrepreneurs. Let's say, and then and then we're currently in the process of, of moving into that and seeing can we build again a long term solution there? But because we're asking ourselves these questions very early, um, we are not, you know, building up a lot of, of residual attachment, let's say, to an idea or to a, a solution. Okay, so I'm going to be devil's advocate for a minute. Let's take. A, I've already been the the content developer, so let's be let's be. Uh... <laughs> I'll be like a, like, I'll be a CEO for a second. Okay. Uh, so I'll be like, all right, Henry, that's great. But you know what? The only thing that really, really gets results is taking action and discovering what happens when you get in the thick of it. And if you're sitting around meditating and thinking about, you know, is this the right choice? You're never going to take action and, and, and get into the, the nitty gritty that will ultimately help you find your, your right path. And, you know, uh, and all this, all this, uh, you know, balancing stuff sounds kind of precious. So, what do you say to someone who has that that I, way of thinking? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot because I've seen it a lot. My view is that people fundamentally do not know what the best the best version of themselves are. And I'll give an easy example, and then move on to what I mean with that. For example, I've met a lot of people over my life. And I'm sure everyone has that will say, oh, like, I don't need eight hours sleep. I'm fine. I'm like four or five. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They'll brag about it. Exactly. And they will. And I trust me. I slept two hours yesterday. Exactly. And then I went jogging. And then went to a party. And then do you, do you ever see them come into the office like, energized? Do you ever see them um, 
you know, for example, like writing the book, I would, I would strictly up at like 6 a.m. for four months writing that because I fundamentally understood if I did not sleep like eight to nine hours, get up early, I was not going to be able to bang out 2,000 words in an hour or so. But if I were tired and I've had days where I haven't slept well, like hungover or something, you literally, my, I would generally say my impact is about 20%. But that's how effective I am. So, so yeah, the first point is sleep is a great example. Like who is effective? Who is happy also when they're, when they're underslept or stressed? And secondly, I don't think people are, because again, it's difficult and intangible, this thing of efficiency and impact. Yeah. That it's, it's difficult for, to know how, to, how, again, what, what the, what the optimal is. But for me, because I've done, you know, a lot of freelancing working for myself, I've experimented a lot with these Tim Ferriss type things, right? So. Yeah. Well, it was a 90 minute yeah. blocks, meditating mid afternoon, like intermittent fasting. So like, I know how my, my most <laughs> effective day is. And my most effective day is five hours, like very intense work in the morning. Then it's doing like a phone call or two in the afternoon, meditating, going to the gym, writing down some ideas. Like I know that that is way more effective than me working 14 hours straight, 16 hours straight, because I've done that. That's with, a trophy, man. Yeah, yeah. I've done it with my first business. And what, what, where did it get us? It got us making very bad decisions. Yeah, that's so, kind of, there's a, there's a term for it I found online that I really like. They call it struggle porn, where, <laughs> where people are so proud of how hard they're, they're working. They, they, they almost avoid, um, like, thinking about because like let's be fair like a lot of it's successful easier it's way, think about it's way more psychological psychologically it's much easier to not think about like strategy and uncertainty yeah but I, well, let me throw this in too also like i mean with, with no no disrespect to anyone who's created something successful a lot of apps are kind of dumb and they still do well so i mean i think yeah. it's it, you wouldn't have to be the most naive person on earth to go maybe if i just promote and work like a maniac like my my idea doesn't have to be good. Like I'm just I'm I'm throw, I don't believe no, this myself. But. Um, I mean, also there's the variable of luck, which is not talked about enough. I mean, with with like luck is the biggest determinant in outcome of a business. Yeah, but you got to show up a lot in order to get lucky too. Right? Yeah, exactly. But that means you need to be pivoting and, and experimenting a lot as well. You can't just sit on the same idea. Um, but sorry, my point there is that. I think it, it's it's easier, right, to think that hard work can get you an outcome. It's a much easier thing because it's within your control. It's much more difficult. For example, with, with Scribe at the moment, it's difficult to know that even if we build a very good solution for a very specific problem, deliver value to those customers and uh, get them to, to, you know, get enough of them to pay for us to do this as a full-time business, then, sorry, uh, even if we do that, we don't know whether it's the right time. Right. Um, like, are we sitting in the water waiting for, like, the fifth wave to come? Is that going to be the big one? Is it ever going to come? Is, you know, is that a flat day? Or, or are we just on the cusp of a big wave come with, with that? It's very difficult. You, you can look at trends, like Google Trends. You can look at other businesses being funded in the area. But fundamentally, you don't know. And you need to be very, um, again, I like the surfing analogy of this. You need to be sitting in the water with your eyes up and scanning, not just looking at your board in front of you, because you always need to be thinking about the big picture. But yeah, again, it comes be, with this psychological toll. Yeah, no, I like this metaphor. I, I, uh, I, I took up some surfing last year. And one thing, <laughs> I'm not, no, this will not turn into a surfing story. Do not worry. But there is something to be said about, you know, the analogy of keeping your eye on the terrain 
But in order to do that, you first have to have a decent enough command of yourself with the tools you're working with before you can do that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's again, it's a balance though because you're completely right as well. And and these hot, you know, the the porn strugglers, whatever they are, the, the struggle porn, struggle porn aficionados. There is a very good point as well that you need to get stuck. You need to do shit to learn from it and then move forward. Uh, I am 100% a believer in that, but I also believe that on a daily basis and uh, on a monthly basis, you need to stop and, and take a breath and look around. And for me, the effective tools for doing that are journaling first thing in the morning like for five minutes, just on prioritizing my day, thinking through any problems that are going around in my head, uh, meditating for 20 minutes in the afternoon. Like with those two tools and also by taking regular breaks, I know that I'm always thinking on a, a strategic level. Okay. And I'm able to retain that strategic level so that when I start the next day, I've thought through what, um, you know, when I start my execution phase in the morning, getting stuff done, because I've stopped the day before, thought it through, planned what my priority for the day is and what other things I need to do, because I've stopped to think about that and think about it on a, on a high level, long-term level. Um, when I get stuff done, it usually makes sense. If it's something that really makes sense. Okay. And I think most people... Either are big picture thinkers, which I've worked with before, that like very, very strong strategic thinking. Hyper macro. Exactly. But they, they can't work out what is the step I should, you know, take right now to make that happen. Equally on the other side, there are people that are very good at, very good at executing, but, um, simply, are simply unable or unwilling to think on a strategic kind of. Yeah. I, I would throw in on that note, like one thing. Alan, what's the best way to say this? I mean, okay, cool. So there's, there's, once I've robustly understood that my startup sucks in its current form. Yeah. I've got my eight hours of sleep. Um, and, and, and I've, I've, I've got my balance of micro and macro thinkers. All right. Yeah. So then how do I, I mean, how, how do I make something that works after that? I mean, I know that that's a bit of a broad question, but so besides just having the fortitude to put yourself in a good state and also, recognize what's wrong with my startup how do you i guess how do you how do you trim the fat so to speak yeah 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 sorry i I didn't i forgot to and identify like the like a a successful point because i'm I'm sure the book is not just uh no uh, a hard a hard message that your startup sucks and you should give up and go to sleep no this is a point that i think (laughs) a lot of the articles a lot of criticism came in about like where's the solution a third of the book is 150 pages on this process and essentially it's broken down into uh, three stages, right? So, so firstly, you need to define a vision. Um, and everyone understands what vision is broadly, but a lot of people sort of misunderstand what it should be. So they'll talk about like, you know, let's save the world. Like, what is that? What does that really mean? I don't know. Firstly, <laughs> certainly when you look at the homeless population in San Francisco, a lot of very successful startups have failed to change the exactly. world and and on, that, on connect, that front. Connecting the world, really disconnecting the world. But, so the point is that it's like you need a very concrete vision that, that doesn't shift over time. Right? So you could pivot your, you know, uh, you guys right here at Workstreams. It's a product management tool. But if you have a clear vision about helping people do more work, that doesn't keep you in a niche of product management tool. Right? It could be, you know, eventually it could be meditation helps people do more effective work. So you could do something in that space. So you have this very concrete yeah. Um, high-level vision. You need that first one. A lot of companies lack that. Second of all, that vision actually needs to tie into what your long-term interests are. So not not just the statement itself, but again, it's like, what will keep me motivated for 20 years? 
if it, you know, it's not going to be making money. It's going to be this thing that gets you up in the morning, the excitement, the drive, the interest of the work. So you need to, to firstly have a concrete vision, but also make sure that vision ties into your beliefs yourself and also have a conversation with your team about, um, you know, do, are we all aligned on this? Are we all aligned yeah. on the direction we're going in? I agree with that. Without, without getting off into a WorkStreams direction, one thing I've really enjoyed and really appreciated about working at WorkStreams has been, um, the degree to which we try things and then if, if they don't work, we move on. And yeah. if we do work or if they do work, we, we really do, um, take some action towards it quite quickly. Yeah, and which is very rare. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm appreciating it more every day. I mean, I'm a UX designer running a podcast right now, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, but I think it's good. I think it is something to be said, um, even if you're the most utilitarian person on the planet and you've got a clear idea of what you want to work on, um, it's very easy to, um, you know, get cynical about the values and the perspectives and 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 things that are difficult to quantify if yeah. i may um but that does lead me to like the next question of sort of um like why do you think most people start startups like what do you think what are they motivated by if, if nine out of ten fail or whatever it is um yeah. what what do you think what do you think most people are trying to get out of it is it money is it status is it is it just something an interesting couple of yeah. years let me also after this story let's go back to the solution yeah, we'll, we'll definitely um, pick up on that it is a I mean, what is human nature fundamentally comes down, when you break it down, comes down to status in various formats. Okay, so status. So it is... Um, status, I'm talking British now. Yeah, so... <laughs> I mean, essentially, right, it comes down to this thing of like... Because money is a story we tell ourselves that... we we If you live in... If you're lucky to live in Western Europe... You're not going to start, right? So any worry about money comes down to, well, I don't say everyone, but really comes down to like me having money, which comes down to showing off to people around me in some way. Um, it could also be, you know, again, showing off about how much freedom you have and autonomy and purpose, et cetera, as well. So I think at its, at its core, it's that, but I think there is, there are two camps on this, right? And one is, you see, I mean, you see a lot everywhere. One is the just very clearly, I want to make money and build the next big thing and be sort of famous and I'm open about that and comfortable with it, maybe unaware of it. But I think that's, that's the obvious one. And I think actually the other group, which is nowadays much, I mean, it's the reason why people also join startups is our generation. What are we millennials? Yeah, I think, I think we're millennials. Do you have Facebook in high school? Yeah. Yeah, then you're millennial. I'm millennial. <laughs> That's my measuring stick. Yeah, I don't know. It's anonymous. <laughs> um, sorry, my point is, I think everyone is also searching for purpose, right? I think in modern society, we've lost this link, particularly in cities, to our core community, right? To providing value there. And obviously, I think, you know, status is involved there, but we had that. And I think that the original purpose of humans was to, um, you know, essentially support your, your community, your, your close-knit yeah. community. And um, now because we are lonelier and sort of more divorced from our families and friends, you know, for example, living, both of us living abroad, right? You, you still have those connections, but it's not your unit you're with all the time you're trying. Yeah, my parents, sadly, at the moment, are these little people who live inside of WhatsApp, which has been a... Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think I think 
part of that um, dislocation of what what not human nature, but well, it is yeah, human nature, right? If we sort of dislocate ourselves from what what is natural, I think part of it stems. Um, I'm absolutely not qualified to talk about it. This is my view on it. Do it, do it. Stems from, uh, yeah, this need to have, where else do we get purpose? Where else do we find our tribe? Like, how can we, you know, in this office, 20 20 people or so here, what are we all going towards? And and we want to have that trust and and sense of like camaraderie there. And I think a startup provides that more than a corporation because it is, it's a tribal yes. unit. It's exactly, small. but it's more clear. It's it's yeah. It's a smaller unit, and also um, there is a more clear impact with our work, and we, we, our time is valued more with each other. Yeah, yeah, and people remember you and stuff like this. Exactly, and people know you. They don't just know your name; yeah. they know you. Exactly. So, like, there's, a, I mean, a really good um, section from *Sapiens* by Yuval Harari where he talks about. Love that guy. Yeah, I love him. Um, the if you haven't read *Sapiens*, read it. And *Homodeus* is also pretty good. *Homodeus*. *Homodeus*. Twenty-one lessons from the twenty-first Talking century. Talking American. Very yeah. good. <laughs> um, what was he going to say? He yeah, he makes a very really, this is like a common anthropological part of our knowledge now, I suppose, where humans basically dominated um, Neanderthals despite their greater size because we were able to operate on a very large level. Our large corporations, Neanderthals, Henry. Is this what we're building to? So my point. What's the point? Let me let me tie it up. I I I, I've I've done a lot of questions in a short amount of time, and you've done excellently. So the reason I asked initially the the purpose question in alignment with the solution question is so you know a big part of your your thinking and a big part of your book and something I really appreciate is is that you you encourage people to look at the the perspectives and the people that make up an organization, and then and then. Basically, look at the strengths and weaknesses. Look at the strengths and weaknesses of what they're working on. Accept the shortcomings and and use that information to pivot, which you will inevitably have to do if you have a startup. And considering that you've said that, like one motivation for a startup is is you know on one level very tribal. Let's stay anthropological for a second because yeah. most people shy from it because they're afraid it sounded silly. You sounded quite good when you talked about it. Yeah, is we want this pursuit of this, there's a scramble for status community. Um, wealth and let's let's just say general general uh, connection and purpose. So, given given that, you know, a startup could financially succeed, but then fail, you know, on a on a spiritual level, or or it could be a a great um, you know learning bed for someone. Let's say you're uh, you studied English in in uh, college and you learned how to be a full stack developer. The startup tanked, and that was the lily pad to the next thing. I mean. Maybe why your startup is failing is, is, is one way of talking about your book. Maybe the other one is, um, you know, what success looks like to a lot of people, you know? Yeah. And so that, that's the point I made about the, um, it's a good segue into talking about how I, how you should approach actually building a startup from the, from the ground up is that is, again, when we talk about vision, we, we do not talk about the only thing that actually matters, which is, um, are we aligned on where we are going as founders or as an early stage team? And also this should be an ongoing thing. Um, do we believe we're moving in the right direction? So for example, it is fine if you have a team of founders that believe that we should take investment on because that will get us to where we want to be and how we define success. If you want to solve climate change, you need 
pretty likely you're going to need to take on investment because you're solving a very big problem. But you need to have that conversation very early on because with Backtracker, for example, my, my first business, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to start that business to have autonomy and purpose. And actually, I found myself, by taking on early stage investment, moving much more towards like, how can we optimize for profit and not actually saying, well, can we just make enough profit to you know secure our long-term interest yeah. whilst enjoying the freedom, not having investment, being able to do what we want, manage the business as we want, uh, keep it small as well. So, so um, again, it's fine to take on investment, but that decision, that discussion of how that company should be shaped needs to be from day one. So with Scribe, like we made a very deliberate decision that we are not taking investment. We will bootstrap it. If it doesn't work at some point, that's fine. Like we're fine with that. We can pivot the idea. We keep the team, pivot the idea. Move on to something else. As we've done, we've pivoted our, our market. Um, you need to have the decision very early on. Because otherwise, as you said, like how you define success can be very different for different people. So if I founded a company of someone that was after wealth and, and, you know, being on the front page of Wired, et cetera, like that's not the game I'm in. Um, and at some point we are going to have a rupture, which is very likely to destroy the company. Um, so yeah, when you are starting a startup, you, these are these difficult conversations that are not had because most people, are not looking at the horizon, right? They're not sitting on the on the surfboard scanning the horizon. They are simply paddling. They don't really care where they're paddling to. And they might be paddling to just, red water full exactly, of freaking yeah, sharks. Henry. Coral, spiky. Or just coral. Yeah, the coral sucks as well. But I mean, I think that's maybe the the most profound bit of, of all the things you say to some extent is it's not about uh, a startup is, is failing by any single particular metric, but you're saying that most startups fail because most startups are incoherent. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's the title is deliberately provocative. Like there are a lot of factors studied, uh, sorry, a lot of factors that contribute to failure. But, but generally it is, it, it doesn't come from, so one, you know, one factor, for example, can be lack of expertise, right? If you want to cure cancer and you don't have a scientist in your team, clearly you're, you're, you're very unlikely to solve that problem. Right. However, the uh, three or four core factors involved in success are actually things like are you adaptive are you open to change um are you are you resilient right again are you able to deal with things like failure um and yes on a company level again a lot of these things uh sorry a poor mindset or poor ability to make decisions generally leads to incoherency um so it's not the sort of root cause right because where does incoherency come from as you know where does decision making come from but for me, the thing that I've seen most is that because there is no clear direction, because people are not stopping, pausing to say, where are we going? Right? Setting a clear vision and then a, a strategy to help achieve that. Because companies don't do that, you just have teams just running around in chaos. Yeah. With yeah. no one actually saying, like, guys, what are we? Like, you know, I've literally asked the question of people, like, why, why, why are you doing this? And they don't me, know. No, they have no idea. For <laughs> me, it makes it's completely bonkers to think that you would start your day not knowing like why you're doing something. It doesn't make any sense. So coming back, sorry, I really need to talk about the solution. Is so once you define your your vision, yeah, that's easy. The hard part though is then saying like we are setting a strategy, like we are setting a deliberate strategy based on certain assumptions. And we are saying like we are going in this specific direction, right? So for yes. example, say the vision of of um, 
Work streams. Work streams, sorry. Work streams. Say the vision is, you know, helping you do better work. Your current strategic assumptions, like by building a uh, product, product management tool, we will enable people to do better work. Um, that means, though, that not only are we doing this thing, it means we are not doing other things, right? As a company, we are going in a specific direction. And what you see in most companies is they go, well, let's sort of like try six, seven things, like whatever, because that feels safer. Yeah, like carpet putting, bomb it. Exactly. Rather than putting choice. one big, big bet on one, <laughs> yeah, rather than doing like one big bet on one direction, um, not the, not the band, sorry. Going in one direction, seeing how it's that goes, <laughs> seeing how that goes. If it, if that doesn't, um, you know, if that doesn't solve the, the user problem and it doesn't also, if it doesn't deliver enough value to them for them to then pay for it, then we simply take a step back and we try something else. Too yes. many companies just try a little bit of everything, not enough. They don't commit to one to one uh, thing. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a coherent value. I think it's a good one. I mean, I think uh, once again, you know, hey, to to hawk my my startup one more time, but but genuinely, is that one thing I do like about our approach? Because I mean, let's let's face it, nobody wakes up in the morning and gets excited about project management tools yeah. or, or a very small, I do, very interesting do. number of people. I do too. No excites. I yeah, they <laughs> make my life easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'll say is, I think that one thing in terms of like a direction we pursue or a value we yeah. have is we really do prioritize communication. We do yeah. think most project management softwares are about kind of sucking you in into an environment you don't need or want to be in. Oh, 100%. And uh, what we try and do is augment where you already communicate. That's why we're a, we're a bot in Slack and yeah. we, we give you a quick overview of what other people are working on. Because, yeah. I mean, the way I look at it, at least, is in a perfect world, you would have no software because everyone would just know what everybody was doing. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, going back to what you were saying about incoherency, I mean, one way I've always looked at it is there's no cause of incoherent. It's, there's a cause for coherence. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, you know, you know, most, yeah. most, most things we try and do are fairly entropic and screwed up. And, um, you know, we adore chaos because we like producing order. Um, but one thing that I, I mean, it does bring us back to your, your point about the solution. I mean, what I like about your solutions is that they are sociological. They are holistic. They don't overstep their boundaries. They don't preach um, kind of a Ten Commandments set of principles. And I think that's one of the things you said to bring us back to the original point on Agile is that Agile is something that is um, a philosophy. Yeah. It is not um, an instruction manual where you can tick some boxes and go, okay, we, we followed the manual. Why aren't we rich? Why aren't we feeling purposeful? Why exactly. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. So things like Scrum, you know, Scrum is a tool to make decisions as, you know, with this solution. So, um, Scrum, yes. Yeah, as, as in the book, for example, you know, statistically following a lean startup approach. So this idea of defining a clear strategy, working out what assumptions underpin that. So, you know, for example, um, with, with you guys, again, with the Slack plugin, like, do people want to use it? Do Slack plugins generally work? Can we make money from this? Like, these are assumptions we need to answer. The level down from that is how are we executing to work those assumptions out, right? So which experiments are we running this week to um, say, okay, can we test pricing? Like, did that work? How many, what percentage of users ended up paying for it? So so that is a, a lean startup approach, which I, I fully evangelize in the book, right? is, is the core of, of my approach. But equally, it is a toolkit because as we t- touched upon with the, the, you know, the Steve Jobs is always the perfect example design thinking is also a toolkit you can use, right? So 
We can't simply make little iterations all the time. At some point, particularly with an early stage startup, we need to say, I am, you know, no user has ever mentioned this idea, but I think this is really going to solve the problem. Give a quick breakdown of, of design thinking for people who might not have the most uh, at the ready definition. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at all on this. Um, it's also sort of a philosophy. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, the core of design thinking is really to, to really deeply understand a problem, observe a problem. Um, say, for example, um, what's a great example? let's say we're building a hospital. Let's get weird. Oh, that's quite difficult. Quite okay. Big, right? I mean, for, for example, say you're, you're, you're testing out, um, you're thinking of building a new laptop, right? That's your, your business idea. Okay. You can maybe look at how people are, no, easy one, MP3 player. So, right, if you were a design thinker back in 2006 or whatever, you could um, observe somebody using their MP3 pick, right? So they have to plug it in, like download 10, fucking, or 10 songs on the thing and like charge it because the battery lasts about 10 minutes. And then you have to like do your funny little headphones and carry this USB thing around. Like that was really fucking annoying. Yes, it was. It was so annoying. You have to change the songs every like day or so because you listen to a 10 and you're done. So a design thinker would say like, okay, well, that, that is a very like clunky process. <laughs> Therefore, how can we, for rather than like increasing battery life, how can we radically change this and actually make it so you never need to keep plugging it into your computer because you have a thousand songs on there. If you're making a huge, it is based on making huge leaps, huge assumptions. That, um, that, that, that they ought, that you also assume will have a huge payoff. Yes. Right? So it's making a big bet. And again, with early stage startup, it really makes sense. You need to, to, um, make, take these risks because if you're working on a new product, you're not going to build something that really matters if you are just tweaking, you're making a tiny bit better version or a tiny, tiny, sorry, a slightly cheaper version of a product that already exists. You need to radically change that. So you need to be slack for what communication tools were. You need to be the iPod for the MP3 player. You need to be the jump bike for those funny little Chinese ones, which go very slowly. Um, yeah, yeah. Have you seen those pictures that were like, I think they're like two years old now, but are these oceans of, of, of share bikes that were getting overgrown with moss. And it, yeah. it, it, it looked like, it was very dystopian. It looked like something from Photoshop, but it was real. Um, anyway, point, yeah, yeah, point, sorry, sorry. point being is that these things, again, are, are, are tools that you can use. So you can use... Scrum, you can use a lean product development process, which again, I, I evangelize in the book and, and read part three of the book. And I have step-by-step -step guides for that with templates you can use to actually structure this yourself. Um, point is though, that again, for me, it fundamentally comes down to, you can use any tool and it can power you. You can put a little motor on your, your surfboard right to help you move faster. But if you're not moving in the right direction and you're not scanning the horizon for where the rocks are, where the risks are, yeah. where the wave's coming, again, where the opportunity is, then um, those things simply don't matter. A hammer, yeah. A hammer can create and it can destroy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it really can destroy again because, again, if you, as I said with Scrum, like load a team, they don't understand it fundamentally or they are simply ill-equipped psychologically to deal with uncertainty and adaptability and organization that that prop being really agile actually requires right um folks then, then for really quick just, sorry folks, yeah. for people who, who are not super familiar with scrum it is the uh is the act of sort of running uh sprints on a product so and you do a certain set of features in a certain set of time or at least you you pursue it um 
Yeah, you agree to essentially focus on on one objective as a team, usually over something called a two week sprint. So you agree to you commit to build X by two weeks, or commit to delivering on uh, one objective after yeah. two weeks. And you're saying that you know if if the plan demands you change your your, your Scrum method or your approach, and people are you know safe and cozy in a structure, that is that is bad news. Yeah, because you're also um, people don't like change because it is uncertain and it has again this psych the psychological toll that also people do not talk about with entrepreneurship is it is very difficult because it's a lot of ups and downs i think there's a stat I, i've got it in the intro of the book i think it's about 30 percent of entrepreneurs suffer with mental health and like for 30? me i'm, I'm I, it's 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 at least triple i don't want to say that it's at least triple the national average or the U.S. national average. Oh my god! Point point is there is like and so the U.S. Example, national average is, is a little higher than I think <laughs> yeah, a lot of other yeah. places. Yeah, that's true. Um, point is is that you know I am able to deal with uncertainty and risk now very comfortably and not have you know psychological issues because I um, have developed and cultivated these these skills of being mindful, being robust, and, and being focused on the essential. But your average employee, right? Because they've, you know, if you work in a corporation, you've always had a comfortable life. Like you, you, you work there because you don't want risk. You want your 20 year contract. Yeah. Particularly here in Germany, right? You're, you're essentially a lifetime employee. Then you can't expect somebody that craves certainty to suddenly throw that out the window. So you know what? Tomorrow I'm going to accept that we know nothing, that we're building something that's complete crap or makes no sense. That simply, Agile, therefore, in my view, is incompatible with most uh, cultural contexts, right? Most, most company cultures, uh, because the team is simply ill-equipped and will never be equipped to do it. And every single, um, I don't say every single, most, the vast majority of corporate initiatives that try to recreate this, this startup culture within some new, new product, it simply does not work because the, the foundation is not there. Again, the, the people do not have the right, the correct mindset for this. Well, I mean, and it also, it, it takes explicit forms too. I mean, for example, you know, there's a big debate um, in, in the startup world, in the corporate world of a uh, priority versus deadline, right? Yeah. Like, do you have a strong opinion about one of those? Do you? Try to say again? Like, for example, what's the most important thing to focus on as a company when you're like managing tasks? Uh, we, we, we think about task management a lot awesome. here at WorkStreams, but like when you think of, I mean, some people have strict deadlines that make people stick to them. Some people say focus on the priority, and it takes as long as it needs to take. Do you do you Again, have it comes a stance? Down to like how many things we eighty percent of our day is wasted on things that a week later simply do not matter. Therefore, <laughs> does a deadline for something that doesn't make sense? Does the deadline matter? No. Does is it, however, important to balance prioritization with some pressure to get things done and get them done on, on some sort of timeline? Yes. However, again, the key metric, right? There always needs to be one key metric we focus on. In my view, that must always be prioritization. Like what? Yes. What, what do, does what we are doing make sense or not? If it doesn't, it simply doesn't matter. Once you have that, that focus, right? So again, when, when you have a process where you have a clear vision, a clear strategy and a clear process for executing, uh, on experiments to help you validate that strategy, 
Once you have that process, then, uh, and sorry, that you, your team is, is starts getting good at prioritization, then you can start tweaking it, right? You're fine-tuning it. Yeah. But but it's fine-tuning. It's not building the, the car itself, right? Um, uh, is that a good analogy? I yeah. think it's, let me, let me throw another analogy in, although I like yours. You're pumping your bike tires up. Yeah. But the bike, you know, the bike's, the bike's moving in the right direction. So I like the bike analogy too. I would, I was going to throw out painting, but maybe we don't even need it anymore. Go hit me with it. Okay. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a painter I like named George Kondo. He makes a lot of very interesting stuff. And, 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 um, one thing that he said, and I'm, I'm sure he wasn't the first or last person to say it was that once you uh, put something down a canvas, uh, you know, you, you're forced to react to what's already there. And then that kind of, that can take control of you a little bit. And, and 100%. Um, that is a really good point that um, I have noticed a few times. So I've noticed a few times in, in my um, particular product work is when we make decisions, we don't consider the second or third order consequences of it. So for example, this is a great point for product people that it really is missed is when we are building a feature, it doesn't matter if the original feature takes a day to build, right? What we instead need to think about is what are the consequences of this? Because at some point we're going to forget that we just built that feature because someone requested it and it didn't really matter. And at some point we start building on top of that thing or we start needing to um, deal with technical debt that came up with it or design debt even. Yeah. And so we start like tumbling in one direction and we forget originally like which direction we should actually be going with. So we end up um, making decisions based on something that was completely unfounded and unvalidated. So it's very, so, so coming back to this deadline point is no, it doesn't make sense pushing just, you know, we've started it. Let's just get it done because Firstly, it doesn't fucking matter. Secondly, <laughs> it will build a lot. It will distract us and nudge us in the wrong direction um, over the long term without us even realizing it or even remembering why we why we started it. Um, so my view is always cut. Cut everything unless it's been validated and unless it's something that's going to get us towards our, our long-term um, goals as a company. Agreed. Yeah, like... Break things down into simple, manageable steps you can understand the purpose of and just get them done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just make sure they make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Assuming they make sense. That's yeah. that, and that, that seems to be the toughest part. So I guess, you know, to, uh, to put like the, the sunset on this fantastic podcast, <laughs> we still got some minutes. There's no rush. Um, I, I'd like to throw in. So then once you've gotten your shit done, yeah. what do you like to do? Personally, or yeah, personally, man, yeah, yeah. As in, as in, work? so because because so much of what you say is about um, you know identifying purpose and balance. Yeah. But I mean, one thing that we talk about at Workstreams a lot is you know a work life balance and also efficiency at work are are often mutually exclusive topics that should be discussed uh, together. Because yeah, one hundred percent. I exactly. I think this. <laughs> I mean, again, it comes back to the core of the book is. Me as a, Henry as a, a person, like how I make decisions, how I approach my life directly informs how my work is done. So. Yeah, um, you got your idea for your first thing floating down the Amazon. Exactly. Like these things exactly. are not but, isolated. But it's also things like, um, you just simply can't separate them. It's why I try to create as smooth a transition between those two parts of my life as possible. So my afternoons, as I said, like I like to go to the gym. I like to meditate in the afternoon. I like to read a book in the afternoon whilst you know doing a work day 
because for me that is um, how I bridge what what other people consider very separate things. For me, they flow into themselves. Or for example, me writing a book. Again, I started that as that is simply a project that I find interesting. I like writing every morning anyway. The book just simply emerged from that. Now the fact that it is a a uh, you know a tool used to um, you know used to help other product people, other product founders do better work, build better products faster, is simply like a byproduct of this thing that I found purposeful for myself. Um, and so everything for me is, is overlap, right? So me, you know, enjoying nature, surfing, meditating, reading, writing, all of these, or hanging out with friends, you know, us, we had similar chat last week in the park, having beers, etc. That's true. We, there, <laughs> was a, there was a, a slightly, a slightly less coherent version of this conversation <laughs> yeah. um, over some, over some beer. Um, but uh, the point is, is there's, there's uh, yeah, so for me, the, the purpose is really, I, I do work because it's, there's, there's not really a clear distinction. And I think if you are the type of person that wants to get out, you know, walks in the office 9.30 and is watching the clock till 5.30 till they can leave, then get you, need out, to, man. Yeah, you need to fundamentally <laughs> rethink it because there is then a divorce between your true self, right? Your, your, you, you out of work person, your, your hopes and dreams and the reality of your day to day. And I simply do not believe that I, th- I really believe that most people avoid the difficult questions they should be asking themselves about how to unite those two things. And I don't think it's very difficult, but it requires a lot of self-examination, which, again, requires these principles of, of you need to be mindful to understand and, and really observe yourself and what you want. You need to be robust to be able to say, you know, I fucking hate my job. I'm leaving it. I'm actually going to go and do a, a course in, in programming because that sounds really interesting. And finally, you need to be essentialist right and, and again if you're busy and you want to change career um don't you know don't just listen to music on your way to work um don't go to bed at midnight after watching four hours of netflix like read like speak to people go to meetups like, there's, there's so many yeah. options for us. but but um so as i said so for me purpose is really doing work that i think has impact whilst also you know me being a happy person and having a very balanced life and I don't think it's as difficult as most people think it is. No, I mean, there's the guy, the founder of Angel, Angelist, uh, Naval Robinkoff. I, I, I yeah, hope I'm saying that yeah. correctly. The ball. He, he had a good line where he, he basically just said, like, you know, like, you know, if you're not happy, like, you know, be smarter. Like, I mean, maybe not quite that, but uh, if, if so, many, we always say that smart people are not happy. That's a common thing people yeah. say. And his point is, well, if you're so smart, how come you can't figure out to be happy? Like, exactly. <laughs> like, I think we have this kind of like really kind of dumb, cynical view that happiness is this kind of imaginary thing that just kind of, yeah, you know, cynical it. urbanites exactly. uh, have transcended with, with knowledge. But again, for me, it really comes down to, I mean, a key, if you're going to do one thing to improve your life, for me personally, that has been, and that's from a lot of self-experimentation, meditation, giving me the ability to observe myself and therefore start cultivating a vision for how I see my life, right? Just understanding like what makes me happy, what yes. makes me not happy. Most people are really unaware of those things because they're constantly rushing around. So there's this inner monologue, which is simply creating problems and things to think about that doesn't matter. When they do that, they are not pausing to say, okay, well, 
considering what I what makes me happy, considering what makes me unhappy, how do I move forward to um, to create a happier life? Uh, it's not rocket science. It takes five ten minutes of meditation a day. Hopefully, you can develop that a little more into 10, 20 minutes. But it does take discipline. It does take discipline, but again, it's, you know, it's five minutes a day worth your happiness. Yes. Because that <laughs> is the keystone thing. Yeah, again, people are happy to spend, I think we talked about this last week, right? People are happy to spend, um, you know, a thousand quid on a new TV, but they're not happy spending 10 euros on a book about Zen, medi- Zen um, meditation. meditation. Um, which for me is cr- like crazy. I mean, it's crazy, but, but again, I understand it because I've, I've been there and I think for me it's, having these hard lessons of starting for my first business, like self-teaching, you know, language, traveling by myself, um, uh, you know, experimenting with things like meditation. Only with that uh, have I started to appreciate that, um, you know, what makes me happy and how to then craft my life around those things. Yeah, I want to add a point to that because I, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying in my own work. I mean, I think especially in design, a lot of designy people... Um, studied other things or had other interests and, and are kind of consolidating them into what they do now, something I can relate to because I spent a lot of time studying uh, geopolitics and painting in school, which, you know, I think, at least in my own experience, um, without getting hung up on those examples, you know, when you practice noticing your thoughts, those thoughts start to, you know, arrange themselves in a pattern where you, you yeah. then start to notice your sensibilities and your biases and your interests. And then exactly. suddenly... Suddenly you start going, you know, because you're by no means saying this sort of shallow do what you love thing. You're saying kind of notice your ticks, your pathologies, the things that get you excited, the things that energize you. And then try and identify situations that you can export those things into that create value for yourself and the people around. Exactly. So your, your meditation is simply not being captured by the thoughts that are passing through your head. It is an ability to step back. Not stop the thoughts, but be able to observe them. And then there's this magic that's happening. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the science of it because I have no idea. Nah, peak experiences broadly, and monks and ayahuasca no, no, no. will be another topic. So bro- broadly speaking, what you're doing is re, rewiring the monologue that's going in your head. You're redirecting the thoughts and reshaping the thoughts that are going into your head so that gradually you're moving away from this thing of like, um, you know, being stressed out, being angry, being frustrated, like pissed off about the guy that pushed in front of you in the supermarket. You realize that, are those things helping me? You observe those come up. Right? Um, you, you're much, it's, it's really interesting. You start to be able to see them very clearly. And you're like, that's, why do I care? It doesn't matter. It's just making me pissed off. He doesn't even know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, he doesn't um, even know who I exactly. am. So Look how mad he's made So me. then the next time you're in that situation with the guy pushing in front of you in the supermarket, you just, you, you know, maybe the, the emotion comes up a little bit, but you immediately, you've caught yourself immediately and going, like, oh, I don't actually care about those things anymore. So then rather than thinking about being pissed off about the guy in the supermarket all day, in fact, what you're doing is thinking about, you know, life things. Again, like, oh, well, you know, like, what do I want to do in my life? How was today? How could I do better yesterday? Sorry, better. how could I do better tomorrow? These types of things. You're replacing poisonous thoughts with very um, productive um, positive thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to conclude, I, I'll, I'll leave you just with this question on, on that note. I mean, yeah. in, after the meditation, the chapters, the, the everything, I think, I think, uh, the last thing I want to ask is, um, 
what are you, what are you most motivated about now that you're working on? Um, it's one of my most motivated now. For me, it is. It is essentially helping other people do better, more meaningful work. That is the theme across everything I do. So I do some consultancy work with a company that focuses on the future of work called Co-Control. Really what we're trying to do is help freelancers live meaningful um, meaningful lives. And as a freelancer, that is, uh, that is not exactly, always easy. Exactly. And we right. describe it as helping entrepreneurs be more productive, be better at prioritization, more importantly, and therefore live more meaningful lives. Right. They're, they're giving them a better chance of succeeding, whether it's an entrepreneur or a, you know, a, a person, a, a non-entrepreneur. And with the book, it is really, sorry, the book is called Why Your Startup Is Failing will be available on hlatham.com slash book on the 1st of August. Uh, that's when the pre-release is starting, which is exciting. But, but the theme there is really how can we help um, product people and entrepreneurs, again, uh, First of all, approach, not only approach, it's a bait and switch. So how can we help them build more successful start products and therefore startups? But and the, therefore lives in a, in a exactly, roundabout sort of way. Exactly. The switch is actually this, how can, how can they improve their lives? How can they start by doing things like meditation, journaling, cultivating mindfulness, robustness, and essentialism? By cultivating those things, my hope is that they start thinking about um, what meaningful means to them and, and hopefully moving towards that. Yeah. And, and if, if they want to write it down, what's the, uh, the web URL for scribe? As yep, well? Sure. sure. Scribeapp.co. So S C R I B E A P P dot C O. All right. Fantastic. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jesse. And that's it. Don't forget to order your copy of Why Your Startup is Failing today, and you can also read more from Henry on Medium simply by searching his name, Henry Latham. Thanks for joining me on Episode 2, and remember everyone, get your stuff done, go home, and then enjoy your life. (laughs) 